So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, and once you get those Bibles, open them up, please, to the sixth book, the book of Joshua. We are in chapter 23 tonight, 23 and 24. Let's go right to the Lord in prayer, because I'll probably be the first few verses really become kind of foundational. So what we do is we kind of develop those and then kind of let the rest of it see how it plays out. Uh, Pray with me, if you would, please. Lord, amidst the languages and nations and backgrounds and cultures that are represented here tonight. You as the divine multitasker who are spinning planets and keeping them in orbit, who are keeping the blood flowing in our systems, who are uh, keeping fault lines from separating continents and, and volcanoes from erupting. And God, you are just who are holding every atom and molecule in its proper places. Scripture says you hold all things together by your powerful word. You who are doing all of those things at the same time certainly know how to multitask. And in the middle of your multitasking, you know how to, in this room right now, speak in a manner which every one of us can understand. To address in this text the questions and doubts and fears and weaknesses and failures of our heart. To bolster and strengthen those things that are right and the truths we've properly embraced, to sling up and to mend those things that are fractured at the moment, to speak calling into our lives, refreshment. Lord, you you can do all of that, and that's exactly what I ask you to do, to get me out of your way and take my lips and attach them to your heart and speak. To immerse me in you so that you would be what they see. And God, in that, that you would so fortify me that I would be reminded again. It's not the quality of the paintbrush that makes a masterpiece, but it is the talent of the artist. So I, as your paintbrush now, seek to just be used. So in this next 50 minutes or whatever, Lord, now speak in such a manner that we would be captivated, drawn in, changed, enwrapped in your voice to to just see your love and to know you better. And if there be any who have yet to say yes to the gift of your love, let tonight be the night they say. So we commit this time, redeem every second, I pray. May they be perfectly by. And keep us, Lord, captivated in you. And may we have so much fun in this text now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. This is never about a man with a mic, no matter what his title be. It is about the Word of God for which you should test all things. Not just this, but the media and songs and whatever else, and every emotion and so forth. Now, this is where we're at. We are now on the hinge of one of the darkest times in Israeli history. The book of Judges, which is where we'll see, God willing, next week, 
will be a time where everybody does what is right in their own eyes. It is a time of mayhem. It is a time where everybody thinks they're right, but there's no corporate right in it. And it becomes then madness. It is, it is as if anarchy reigns. And a place where God had intended order, peace, joy, love, fruitfulness, there was now a place where everybody was turning in, if you will, and shooting each other. As a result of that, it seemed to be a time of hopelessness. And there was a cycle. It was a cycle where God would bless them, they would bail on Him, they would find themselves in captivity, they would cry out, and God would raise up what we read as a judge. Thus, we read the book is called the Book of Judges. Here we see what hinges on that dark time. And if you were to look back at your life, much like I would look back on mine, we could certainly label periods of time that were a very dark time. Times that we would look at and say was a time of great struggle, a time of great disobedience, a time of hopelessness or helplessness. And if we really don't want to repeat it, we tend to not just look at it, but we tend to look at the threshold of that time. What led me to that? Why did I say yes to go out with that person? Why did I choose to do that endeavor? Why did I throw my card in with that lot? Knowing what would happen. And the next thing you know, we're doing time. We're going to court. The next thing you know, we bear the scars in whatever manner, emotionally or otherwise, from some choice. And it's the scars we still feel, but it's the time before that we have to learn from because those thresholds will be crossed again. And if we don't make the choice to learn from them, well, then certainly we'll find ourselves making that choice. So now Israel has made their way into the nation, has made their way into Israel, the land. Joshua was the one who led them in. It has been roughly ten years since Joshua first led them in. And it says this now in Joshua 23, verse 1. It came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old and advanced in age. He must be very old and advanced in age because in Joshua 13.1, God said, you know, said, now Joshua was old and advanced in years and the Lord said to him, you're old and advanced in years. So by chapter 13, he was already old and advanced in years. By this point, I'm imagining he knows what's about to happen. He knows death is, a, is an eminent thing for him. And Joshua has a really good example. Joshua has, if you remember, took the torch or the baton, if you will, from, from Moses. And Moses, right before he died, threw a stark warning out to the people. And that warning, by the way, as he was, if you will, inaugurating Joshua, he said, look, I know what's going to happen. You guys are going to get into the land. I can't take you. Joshua will. But I, you're going to get into the land and you're going to go whoring after other gods. The faithless heart that you possess will win. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be Joshua, knowing that that's, I'm taking that job. But what he did see was Moses said, I'm going to sing this song, if you will. God told me to tell you this, so that at least I can rest knowing that I've told you the truth. And there is something important in that. There comes a time when you start speaking with somebody that you know is in a place where they're on a trajectory to their own destruction. And we want, with all of our vehemence, with all of our passion, to change them. 
And they're normally convinced it's not a trajectory. It's just a stance. It's like they're at a bus stop, but they're at a bus stop to get on a bus to take them somewhere. They just don't see it. And you try to tell them to your blue in the face. Do you realize where this is ending up? Do you realize the fruit of your labors? Do you realize the regrets you're going to be buried with later? And you have to love them enough to offend them. You have to love them enough to rattle them. Now, you don't have to be a jerk. The truth itself will do the, the rattling. But there gets a point where whether they obey or not, whether they say yes to your counsel or not, you can rest knowing that you've told them the whole truth. Because the hardest thing is, along with watching somebody make those foolish choices, is to say, what could I have done to change this? And if you really don't have a decent answer to that, or to be able to say, there's really nothing left for me to have done, well, then you'll spend your time condemning yourself. And that doesn't help anything. Paul, if you remember, in the New Testament, meets with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And he says to them, I want you to know that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated but to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul says, look, because I gave you the whole counsel, the issue is not whether I've told you the truth. I've told it to you. Now you're just going to need to be able to embrace it. Paul, by the way, we know that because he's pulled all-nighters. People fall out of the window and die, and he just goes up, lays on the person, they, get, they become alive again, and then he finishes his message in the morning. I mean, that tells me this guy is definitely determined to tell you the truth. When God spoke to Ezekiel, he said, I made you a watchman on the wall. If you see the enemy coming and you don't say anything, that guilt's on your hands. But if you tell them and the people don't respond, they may die, but at least you're innocent for it. And we call that, by the way, innocent phase. You get to the point where you've been warning them and trying to help them and trying to step in and trying to encourage them. But sooner or later, it's like, look, it, I need to give you this counsel one more time. This is going to bury you if you're not careful. And please hear me. And whether they hear or not, at least there's that stage where you're being innocent. Now, that's not your primary reason. Your primary motivation is because you love someone. But at least you go to sleep at night going, oh, God, let that information burn its way into their heart. No matter what kind of barrage response or what kind of emotional defensiveness may come out of it, Lord, let it bring the change you want to bring. And now Joshua's in that same place. He knows he's old. He saw, he saw Moses do it, and now he's going to do it himself. It says, so he was old, he was advanced in years. In verse 2 it says, and I won't develop every verse, so we'll never get through two chapters, but just the same. Joshua called for, and notice, he called for all Israel, the elders, the heads and their judges and their officers. And he said to them, I'm old and advanced in age, in case anyone had any questions. Now, stop for just a second. Again, I said I'd develop the first couple. Notice in there is the word judges. It's important to note before the book of Judges, there were judges. It came all the way to Exodus 18. Moses, in his essence, when he was leading the people, was in essence the judge. If you had some dispute, be it civil or otherwise, you brought it to Moses. And Moses' father-in-law, who I, his name is Hobab. Now, I don't know what image that paints for you, but coming from America, Hobab reminds me of some guy that's kind of got his hat sideways and a pair of overalls on, and he just crawled out from under a tractor. Like, Hobab. But he's got good counsel. And he says, you're going to kill yourself. Son, you're going to kill yourself. Help, get some help. Come on. Get some help. You're busier than a one-armed paper hanger. You know? And what you get in all that ultimately is he says, well, why don't you just get some guys to kind of handle the smaller cases and then you can handle kind of the big ones. And God's, and Moses sought the Lord and, and basically what happened is he got it. So, 
God says, why don't you elect 70 guys from that? Pull them from the tribes and let them be judges. And what they are, in essence, are they're your first level judge. I like the fact that God tends to say, let's deal with things from the lowest level first and we'll work our way up. But God was always the Supreme Court. In the end of it all, he always had the final say. You brought it. So here was the deal. So from Exodus 18, <coughs> we saw that. Exodus 21, he says, here's a couple of things. A guy that wants to be a bondservant, he's serving, but he'd rather stay in the house of the guy that he served. They take, and that's, by the way, why this is happening. This is happening. He's like, you go to his master's house, you pierce his ear, you put a ring in it, but you do it in front of the judges so the judges can mark it down so that they're fi- that's official. And that same chapter, if a guy, couple guys get in a fight and they hit a poor pregnant gal and the gal miscarries, take that to the judges. Don't let them kind of work it out themselves or they'll shoot everyone and everyone will be dead. And Numbers 25, when the people went in and married, if you will, the people of Moab, and they started, they started, in essence, bowing down and worshiping their gods. Ultimately, there was a capital punishment for that. And it was the judges who had to step in and perform it. But in Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 17, twice, God makes really clear that if the matter was too difficult, even for Moses, you brought it to the priest and he sought the Lord and the Lord made the final decision. He was always the supreme judge. In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, but if you didn't listen to the judges... The punishment was death. They checked for false witnesses in Deuteronomy 19. If you found a slain guy in the middle of the street in between two cities and neither city, of course, wanted to make claim for it, you brought it before the judges and the judges made a decision. They went and measured and saw which place they were closer to. And, and, I know, and you know what you're thinking, right? I'm, I'm just a little ornery. Let's say that there's a city over here and there's a city over here and the guy's kind of in the middle. And if you were kind of ornery, you'd probably go and push the dead guy closer to the other. Well, you know, ultimately they have to kind of figure that out. It's the judges who did that. Civil disputes in Deuteronomy 25, the judges handled. And in Joshua 8, when they stood between the two mountains, if you remember, Evil and Gerizim, and they talked about the punishments or the blessings and the curses, it was the judges who sat in between and said, yeah, you're right. This is according to... So there were judges, and we always knew that. The only difference is, is that by the time that Joshua, once Joshua sort of steps out of the scene, and the elders that are with him, those judges will dissipate, and there will be no clear leadership in Israel until, by the way, a time of Saul. So verse 3, now Joshua is making clear the fact as he called all of these leaders and he says, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations who were before you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. And this has been clear all the way through Exodus. From the moment they were being delivered out of Israel, I'm sorry, out of Egypt, God says, listen, I'm going to fight for you. This is my battle, not yours. Follow me. This is my battle, not yours. Follow me. This is my battle, not yours. Follow me. If you think it's your battle, you'll try to lead God into it. Have you ever tried to do that? It's a rough situation and you're like, God, follow me. Back me up. God's like, I'm not here for your backup. It's my battle. Follow me. Because it's, I'll take care of it. The whole spiritual battle is letting the Lord fight those spiritual battles and following Him in it. Exodus 14.14, Exodus 14.25, Deuteronomy 1.33, verse 4. It is God who fights for you. So verse 4. See then, I have decided, I'm sorry, I have divided to you lot by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations I have cut off as far as the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, westward. And the Lord your God will expel before from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land 
as the Lord your God has promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Because let's take a look at what we are. We're standing on land that God promised he would fight for us. And now we're standing in that land. We are living on his promise right now. Now, there are still small embers where there was a forest fire. There is still a remnant of an enemy. But before this was their territory. There will still be battles to fight, but they're nothing like the battles you've already seen victory over. And God, just like he did those, will be faithful to complete it. Listen, if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the moment you said yes to God, let me say it in a crude manner, he killed you. He killed the person you were. And he took you and he picked you up and he put you on his workbench. Kind of tighten you in those in that vice, and he starts to carve you into a masterpiece. This is why trying to identify people by previous sins makes little sense. No matter what the, the things that would have identified you, when you say, "Well, what about this or what about that or this sin worse than that?" In the end of it all, if we come to Christ, He kills all of that, and we give Him permission to really completely reinvent us. That's the beauty in this. So it isn't like, what were you? What difference does it make? What were you? You were a chunk of stone. What was I? A chunk of stone. What kind of stone? Does it really matter? In the end of it all, he's carving us into a masterpiece. There's the beauty in it. And that's why we can all be from completely different places and still be in the same place because it isn't where we came from. It's where we're going. And we're all in the hands of the same artist. There's the beauty in it. And as and what, <coughs> excuse me, what Joshua says is take a look for a moment at the battles that have been fought and how far we've come. Do you remember when you couldn't say no to that thing? And now it's not even an appetite. Remember when that thing owned you and dominated you, when you felt handcuffed to it and you thought you'd never be free. And now look at you. It's amazing to see the difference. And some of you, I mean, I can look and I can see how far you've come, even in the hope in your faith. But then you go, but you don't understand there is still battles that, need to, that are being fought right now. And I'd say, well, of course there are. But listen, it is a remnant of the battles you've already seen fought. And I want to remind you, it's his battle. Let him fight it. Follow him. And here's the point. What Joshua is saying is, if he took down the giants, can't he take these guys down too? If he started the work, what makes you think God, who knows everything, is going to finally wake up one day, though he never sleeps, according to Scripture, and go, oh, you know, I'm really kind of tired. I think that's enough for Angel. You really think? And yet what Paul tells us is, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I love that. And what he says is, have you seen victories? So somewhere down the line, you think God's going to start building you and then go, okay, that's enough. I ran out of what? He ran out of what? He's rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in love. Do you know what rich means? You can spend what seems to be everything that you can possibly spend and still have more. Isn't that what it means to be rich? And he's rich in mercy. If he dumped all the mercy that, that Hugo could possibly consume or Henry could possibly consume, he'd still have more to spend that would still be earmarked for Hugo or for Henry. That's the beauty. As a matter of where it is in this, he's just not going to run out. 
Because God knows everything. He knew what it was going to cost when it started the thing, and he knows how to finish it. He's the only one who sees the blueprints. We open up the Bible, what we see is we get a hint of it. But God was like, why doesn't God tell us more? Because if he told us more, we would try to build ourselves. And there's enough of those things out there. And how you're going to help God out. God doesn't need your help. What he wants is your surrender. What he wants is for us to stop fighting him while he does his work. So, imagine, if you will, there you are trying to carve that piece of stone, but the stone's dodging the chisel. Sooner or later, you go, are you serious? But that's kind of where we are. And what Joshua is telling the people, in the simplest sense is here, is listen, if God has really won every battle before you, when you're still facing battles right now, stop for a second freaking out over the present and build hope on the past, on what he's already done. Because the battle's his, it's always been his, and he's not going to stop now. So, here's my challenge to you. Verse 6. And be very courageous. Now, that's interesting because nobody in Scripture has been told more to be very courageous than Joshua. I mean, as I started looking at Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 7, Deuteronomy 31, verse 23, Joshua 1, 6, 1, 7, 1, 9, 1, 18, 10, 25. Joshua finally starts to return it. Nobody has had to be sat down more times and say, hey, be very courageous, be strong and courageous, be very strong and courageous than this guy. And now he's about to pass off this scene and he goes, look it, I know where you are. I know the fear you're entertaining. I've been there myself. But you were the ones who even told it to me. God said it to me and you said, be courageous. Now I'm turning to you and saying, be courageous. Be courageous, which means tends to mean that somehow, now in the current battle, you can lose courage, even though it's a much smaller battle than the battles you fought before this. You've seen God take down huge things, and now all of a sudden you think, oh my goodness, God's going to lose this one? He's taken down the giants, and now there's some sort of like little, you know, minahuni somewhere that's kind of popping out. Do you really think God's going to be really that challenged by it? Are you at that place right now? And you go, but you don't understand. I've struggled with this for a long time. Yes, but see, God wants to take the enemies down of your life one at a time so you can keep giving them credit for it. He took it all down. You'd only be able to tell me what God did when he did that. And you'd have nothing new to say. But he continues to take them down. He goes, they're remnants. They're only remnants now. But if you began it, you'll finish it. So why don't you just be courageous and obey him? Trust him. Trust him and obey him. Do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. If you don't, verse 6, lest you turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And by the way, that's interesting. By the way, you kind of get the idea on one side of it, you turn just to the law, but not the heart of it. To the other side of it, you turn to just become kind of crazy liberal and you make up your own rules. He goes, God's like, just stay with me. Walk that narrow path with me. It's the place of total victory. Lest you go among the, mo- the, the nations who remain among you. Don't make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. Don't serve them or bow down to them. But instead, hold fast to the Lord your God, as you've done this day. For the Lord has driven them out before you, great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you this day. One man shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you. Again, let me remind you, I'll take care, I'll take care of the battles, just follow me. As he promised, trust me, follow me, let me lead you to victory. Verse 11, therefore take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. 
Do you realize God's like, if you really obeyed me, what would that look like? He goes, if I could just give you one command, can it be this? Would you just love me? Find that in another book. And I don't want to diss other people, but it comes natural and stuff like this. I read every religious book I could before I became a Christian because, to be honest, I didn't want to be a Christian. It was the last thing I wanted to be. I wasn't raised one. And I read books of other people that other people follow, and some of them were so... I just couldn't get my head wrapped around them. And I'm not talking about, well, it's a different culture or whatever. I'm just talking about how clearly defiant one thing was to another. But when it says something like, serve and obey and perhaps they'll love you. I'm like, what? You're banking on a maybe? Where it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with cords of kindness, I have drawn you. God loved us before we were us. You only find that in the Bible. A God that created you to love you. He says, well, then what do you really want from me, God? He goes, that you love me back. I mean, if you could create a mate, a spouse... And you can make them, think about how you would make them. Would you make them rebellious? Would you make them headstrong? Would you make them self-reliant? Would you make them quick to fight you? Only God could do something like that. And all of this, he's chasing after us, loving on us, creating painting in the sky, sunset after sunset, growing flowers in our garden that are wildflowers, creating songs to be sung by birds on our windowsills, and we don't listen to any of it because our ears are full of the, our, our iPod and, and you know like, like our iPhone, and we're just and the reason I say that is then we're like, oh, show this God to me, and He's been painting beautiful things and everything around you for so long, and we just tend not to realize where it's coming from, and then you say, so what does He really want? My money? Could you imagine? Hugo chases after Deborah. And he has to prove to her that he's sincere, that he will be faithful, and that he really is worth the trust she would have to place in to be his wife. Can you imagine if she said to him, what do you really want, my money? Now the good news is you could see him going, you really don't have that much to offer. What do you want to be seen with me? What do you want me to be a mindless servant? I would imagine Hugo, and being French probably helps you. He's like, I want your love. That's what I want. And that's from an evil human being. And I don't know, Hugo's no more, Hugo, he's no more evil than the rest of us. We're all evil. But we have that inside of us. And yet we think when God's like calling on us, it's like God's like kind of scooping into our wallets. Here's the funny thing. Deborah will actually have his wallet. Now, that's not saying that's marriage counseling. It's like, I do give you my wallet. It's like, hey, you see a guy care, and one of the places you see it is how we actually, the time and the things he spends, the resources he spends on her. God's like not asking, give me all of your stuff. God's got all this stuff. What he's asking for is our love. And Joshua kind of got that. What Joshua kind of understood in the end of it all is like, look, if you really know what he really wants, all of the things, the obedience and the following and all of that, he's like, it really just wraps into this. Could you just love God? If you love God, you're not going to be turning this way or that way. It isn't like, you know, you know, Deborah's like, well, what do you really want from me? Well, don't worry, you know, Deborah. You know, next tomorrow you could find another guy on this side or that side or whatever. That's cool with me. He's like, look, I want your love and I want your love for me. Because I'm going to dump my love on you. And that's what Joshua's saying here. But if you don't do that, verse 12, or else... If you go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, 
if you instead choose to side with the battles that are still happening, the little embers that are burning still in life, that the, these that remain among you, if you make marriages with them, go back, uh, go into them and they into you, well, then know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. I mean, you're going to go and hand yourself... It's, you can imagine if Deborah's like, no, no thank you, Hugo. You're a lovely little man. Thank you very much. I've decided there's this guy, Nerdner, from... Spain that I really like. He's giant. He's huge. Well, you can see. But can you imagine then Deborah going, but could you still protect me all of the time and take care of me and all that? He's like, what? I mean, doesn't that sound cruel? But how can we do that to God and think that's okay? Well, God, I really don't want to serve you. I want to serve me. I really don't want to love you. I want to love me. And I want to surrender myself to something else. But you still back me up, right? God's like, what? How does that work? He goes, look it. If you really want to do that and run off with those things, you don't even know the destruction they are. Some of us, here's the crazy part, we run off with the things that we know are destruction because we still bear the scars from the last time we were in that place. We still go back. He says, look it, if you want to do that, I'm not going to try these things out anymore, but let me tell you what they'll be. They'll be snares and traps to you, scourges on the sides and on the, and on, listen to this, thorns in your eyes. Does that paint a picture? I mean, any of you like thorns? You get it anywhere and you're like, ah, this isn't cool, but I can't even imagine a thorn in my eye. He's like, that's not just going to hurt and irritate, but you won't even be able to see until you perish. Because the only thing that's keeping you from perishing, God speaking, is my love. And you'll perish from this good land in which the Lord your God has given you. Look at We are called to impact our world around us. That's what we're called to do. We are called to impact. To impose an impact. We are not, by the way, might I say, we are called to influence an impact. We are not called to integrate and imitate. And when the church just looks like what we really need to do is just integrate into the world and look just like them, we're not doing what God called us to. Imagine if a doctor didn't want everyone to know he was a doctor, but instead he just tried to make himself sick like all of the patients. Well, then they would all die and he'd get to die with them. He says, I want you different. I want you different so you can impact and transform this place around you. So behold, verse 14, this day I am going the way of all the earth. Hey, you know what? This is what happens to all of us. And you know in all of your hearts and all of your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things in which the Lord your God has spoke concerning you. As the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All has come to pass. Not one word of it has failed. Now listen and hear me on this. Hebrews 9.27 makes it really clear. Hear this. It is appointed unto man to die once and then to judgment. This is your one shot. Now, there are those that like to bank on reincarnation and all that, and it sounds like a really lovely thing. I'm not, you know, the idea is if you're worse, you're going to be a rat in the next life or whatever. Although, to be honest, these days, the worst thing you could possibly be here is a person because everything else seems to have some fun. You know, like, oh, you can't kill that. That's cute and cuddly. Don't kill that spider. Don't kill that fly. People we can kill. I mean, it's weird how that works. But, but understand what the Bible makes clear. Biblically, you get one shot and this is it. So if you're kind of banking, don't worry, next time I'll have that. Well, it sounds really good, but do you have anyone really that can prove that that happens? What God says is, it's appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. This is your shot. Praise God for that. Now that you know that, choose wisely. 
And he says, look, I'm going on the way of all the way. Every one of us is going to do this one point or another. It's my turn. Verse 15. Therefore, it shall come to pass as all the good things that have come upon you in which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring you the harmful things until he's destroyed you from the good land in which the Lord has given you. When, notice the word when, not if, in verse 16. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord, which he commanded you when you have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you. And you shall perish quickly from the good land in which he has given you. Now, please hear me. This chapter ends with this. Joshua saying, here's your option. God has been faithful. He has kept his word in everything he said. He says, look, if you follow me, I'm going to bless you. If you let me love you, I'm going to bless you. If you hand yourself over to me, I'm going to love you and I'm going to bless you. Let me do that. But I want to warn you, if you want to run off into the world, you will see that it's hell without me. You will see that what I've given you is protection that you will not have when you run away from me. What you've seen is my provision. You won't have my provision when you run away from me. What you see is my pleasure, and you will not experience the peace of my pleasure when you run away from me. In the simplest sense, God does want you miserable when you're running from him because he doesn't want you running from him. It's pretty simple. So because look at if I've kept my word about all the good stuff, don't you think I can keep my word about the other? So Joshua's like, look at him, let me warn you. We've been in God's grace. We have experienced God's blessing in this. Please don't run from that and think you've got a better offer. There is no better offer than this. He's the only one who knows you perfectly. He knows you more perfectly than you know you. And he still wants you. He knows me better than I know me. And the, the much that I know me, I'm not real fond of. I'm really happy to let the Lord kill it. And, and I realize, and yet, the more I discover about me, I'm like, wow, his love is that much greater. Because I see that he loves me through those things anyway. Part of it is admitting, though, at those moments, you know, I am wrong. Now, chapter 24. Joshua gathered the tribes of Israel to Shechem, called the elders of Israel, their heads, their judges, their officers, and presented them before God. Sound familiar? This is our second meeting. The first one appears to have happened at Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is. Now we're at Shechem. What do I know about Shechem? Interesting. By the way, it's not Shiloh. No, Shechem, it's a city of refuge. It's a Levite city. The tabernacle isn't there. But it was given, by the way, to the remaining family of the priests versus just the part that was <coughs> sure, sorry, Aaron's children. This is the remaining part of that family. Uh, of the Kohathites. And it's in the mountains of Ephraim. Now this is what Joshua says. And what Joshua's going to do, by the way, in two parts. He's already said, please, since God has been faithful, be faithful to him. And then he says, look, if you want to run from God just as he's been faithful to bless you and to surrender, you're going to see that you're going to get worked just like he promised. He doesn't, he's not lying on anything. Now what Joshua is going to do is he's going to do something that's going to set a standard for the rest of Scripture. And that is a thing called a perishah. Perishah is the Hebrew word, by the way, for declaration. What he does is he goes through a little bit of the history of Israel up to this point with some kind of theme. And then he brings it to a conclusion that usually means we have a choice to make. In other words, what he's doing is he's preaching. What preaching is, is you lay out some form of standard and then you demand people or challenge people to make a choice. That's why Paul would tell Timothy on his deathbed, if you will, waiting in his prison cell to get his head lopped off. He says, preach the word. Don't just teach it, but preach it. Don't just give people knowledge. Challenge them to do something with it. I mean, if all we got is knowledge out of it, we can walk out of here headstrong people 
and miss the whole point, which is that how do I just intellectually know that God wants my love? I'm going to have to act on that. So we call the people together. And here's what Joshua says in verse 2. He said to the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, that's the father of Abraham, oh, it says, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, which, by the way, his name means snorter, dwelt on the other side, Abraham's brother, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took, this is God speaking, your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to all that I did among them. Afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord. And he, isn't it interesting, he says he'd hear about the Lord. He put darkness between you and the Egyptians. Brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw, <coughs> excuse me, what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the, in the wilderness for a long time. Verse 8, are you with me? And I brought you into the land of the Amorites. And you dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balach, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. And he sent and called Balachim, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balachim. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the, the Girgashites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Yibishites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, and the two kings of the Amorites, which, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you the land which you didn't labor, cities you didn't build, and you dwell in them. And you eat the vineyards and olive groves which you didn't plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods of your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at verse 14. Put away the gods from Egypt? These guys still had little idols in their house? Through this entire time, there is still... Where did they get them? Did they take them with them this whole time? Did they pick them up at the local idol shop somewhere in the Amorites? doesn't say. But what's interesting is even after all this time, he's like, look at it. Let's run through this again, just quickly, listen. And then we'll get to our key crux of this to close this up. This is what happened. Verse 3, I took your father. I multiplied his descendants. I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave the mountains of Seir to him, to Esau. I sent Moses. I plagued Egypt. I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. He put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea upon him and he covered them because I did all of this in Egypt. I brought you out of the land of the Amorites. I gave them into your hand. I destroyed them from before you. When Balaam came, I didn't listen to him, but instead I continued to bless you. He continued to bless you. And so I delivered you out of his hand. I've delivered all of your fights that you've had so far. I've, I've won every one of them. I've delivered them right into your hands. I've even sent the hornet. Now, <laughs> could you imagine you're about to fight somebody? Any of you ever had to deal with a hornet? They are nasty creatures. 
They're like bees on steroids with attitudes. Except they don't lose their stingers and die. Now, I don't know about you, but when a bee stings me, I have this weird, sick comfort to know that's the last person he's going to sting. I'm like, well, that hurts for a moment, but you won't be doing that again. But when a wasp or a hornet bites you, it's like, ha, 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 what's the more of that? And I realized, man, that is nasty. But imagine you're about to fight a battle with someone and you're like, oh my goodness, how in the, how in the world am I going to fight that? And then he's just like, ah, 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 and he's just fighting off. And you're like, you're watching this guy and you almost feel sorry for the enemy as he's just getting nibbled to death by these hornets. You're like, wow, that's wild. In other words, God says, you know, I, I don't want to always do this, but listen, haven't I taken you this far? What part of this, I mean, Here's the danger. When God does something amazing in our life, two days later, we're adding ourselves more into the equation. Sometimes less. Isn't it true? I mean, the first time we tell our testimony on something, normally it's, I was a helpless damsel in distress. And God said, here I come to save the day. And then you were, I was rescued. But somewhere down the line, I was like, we get, by a week later, it's like, I was 98% there and God had to kick in the next 2%. I was almost untied on those train tracks, but the Lord kind of came and he finally pulled that last loop. When the first time it was, I was inches away from death and there was nothing I can do and the Lord just did a miracle. And we stopped miracleizing a miracle and we make it something where God was like our backup. And, he's, and, and what God's like, can I just remind you, you didn't do any of this. All you did was trust me and follow me and I did all of this. Could you ever summon, did you actually put this little thing in your ear and summon the hornets? Are you hornet man now? Didn't I do that? And you wouldn't have written that. You wouldn't have gone, chances are, why don't I just call some kind of stinging beast on them? We don't even think like that. God's like, I did all of this. If I did all of this, then let me ask you, if I've given you all this, and look at where you're at now. You've got so much you didn't work for. So therefore, could you fear me? Now, fear doesn't mean you wake up freaked out over in verse 14. Serve me with sincerity and faith and put away the gods. Put away those gods. Put away those gods. Listen, listen. I wasn't born in California, although it really jives with me fairly well. I was born in Chicago. Our physical education was gang fights. I mean, we kind of, that's what we did. We, 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 were, we learned how to fight at an early age and we did an awful lot of it. But when we moved to California, <clears throat> you had to kind of, taken to the culture and the culture was very very different from where I come from to be honest this culture is much closer to, to Chicago than California was and I remember when I moved there and just the language was different you know and I'm like that cannot be a language you know, and then I watched two guys talk like that and I realized oh my goodness they really are communicating through those like glutteral things and I remember my guys, the guys that started coming to our fellowship, the first guys that showed up at our fellowship were semi-pro surfers. Now, my dad was a professional athlete. I was raised around that. And, so, and, I, and of course, I was stupid enough to say those kind of things where you know you're going to get yours for it. So, like, we want to take you surfing, brah, brah, right? They sure. They're like, watch out, man. It's, like, no, it's kind of a big day. I'm like, big day, it's water. How hard can water be? Yeah, I was asking for it. 
So I got this board. It was, you know, and they took me on a shredder. What that means is a board that's, you know, not like these big stable things like a barge where, you know, an elephant can stand on. But they were going to have me learn my lesson. And these guys were ready. So they paddled and they didn't tell me how to get out. But the first thing I watched is a thing called duck diving. Now, what duck diving is, is when a wave's about to come on you, you take the nose of your, your surfboard and you shove it under the water and then you grab it. Now that it's got that girth, you grab it and you pull yourself under with that now, that momentum. And then the wave just kind of goes over you. Okay. Well, I watched that, but I didn't watch it carefully enough because they weren't close enough for me to watch this thing. And they were like, well, go ahead and learn for yourself, Junior, right? So I'm kind of watching. And so what I'm watching is I watch this wave and what happens is it calls it stacks. What that means is as a wave is about to come over, another wave catches up with it, which makes it now inordinately large. Well, just larger than you thought. Now, when you're laying down, when something turns from one meter to two meters, it really does look much larger. That's about my height now. But when you're laying down, it looks much larger. And again, it's water. What's the big deal? So I'm paddling and I see this thing come and I kind of see thing and I watch it kind of push my board up. Now, as I know that I watched what those guys did, but I didn't see that first part, you know, where you tuck the board in. So what I did is I saw this thing and I went, and I hit myself in the face because I had nothing to hold it, right? So now I've stunned myself with this little surfboard, but that was just the beginning. Because as I did that, I looked up and now the way went, and I kind of looked up and went, what? Came the next one, three in a row. And now look it. It changed my view on everything. Now, all of us, I don't lay awake at night and go, water, oh, no. Like, I hear the rain outside or there's a leak on the, oh, water. I don't do that. But I have a reverence now for the water that I didn't have before. I realize I am no match for a wave my height, my height in California where I came from. I mean, and the hard part about it was, not only was my nose bleeding from smacking myself in the face with it, now was I completely disoriented. But as I'm coming to, the only thing I can hear are two people crying with laughter because they know this is what needed to happen. Here's the point. Is that fear is a healthy reverence for something infinitely stronger than you. So you don't go, yeah, whatever, bring it on. And the way people talk about God amazes me. When I hear Jesus' name out in society here, I assume it's blasphemy. I don't assume a Christian saying his name. I just assume when someone says his name, it's somebody who doesn't know him. They've stubbed their toe. And then the shirts and the things that insult my Savior. And they have no idea that at any moment he could just go, wah, 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 wah. Now, the crazy part is not the people who don't know. Because I understand from my own ignorance that I'm like, how hard could water be? But when it's the people who know God that amaze me. And Joshua's not talking to people who haven't followed him. He's like, let's review again how many times God has jumped in and just kicked butt. And you've seen it. Think you were helpless. There was, it was infinitely greater than you, and God took it down without breaking a sweat. So when Joshua's like, fear him, he's not going freak out over him like he's Oz. He's going, put a healthy reverence to how infinite his power is. Because if you don't do that, if you don't fear God, you'll fear everything else. And he's going, you know, get that healthy reverence back. You can't get that in an idol. 
And when you watch God take down everything in front of you, God's like, every time I do this, it's on display in your heart if you're willing to look. My Holy Spirit will remind you what I've done. So Joshua's like, look again. God did this, and God did that, and God took you out when you were a slave, and then God carried you out of this, and God delivered you from that addiction, and God got you out of that relationship, and God carried you, Father, and God healed your mind, and God took you out of this situation, and now what's left? Another giant? But if you don't see how big God is, You'll think you have to fight this battle that God says, it's my battle. Let me remind you, I will fight for you. It's my battle. Trust me and follow me. Look at where you're at now. And you're living off of graces you did not earn because it wouldn't be grace if you had it. If you'd earned it. So, put away those other things. Those things that banter for your trust, that oppose your trust in God. And if you love Him, you'll offer yourself to Him to be used by Him. Isn't that what it means to serve? God doesn't want your mindless work. What God wants is your heart and your availability. Verse 15 says, And if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, Evil, ra'a, and means harmful. Like, if it really, do you think, I don't know, serving the Lord's a bad thing? Well, then choose for yourselves this day who you'll serve. Whether the gods of your fathers that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites and where you dwell. But as for me and my house, we've already made our decision. We'll serve the Lord. It's interesting because I remind you, Joshua is about to die. He knows it. I'm old, man. This, I'm, I, you know, it's like, to be honest, at this point, I can hear my life insurance policy making walking to the bank right now. I'm aware of that. I'm not even heading down the hill. I'm looking at the bottom of it right now, and someone's already starting to dig. But I've, I've, my family, we've already made our choice. And did you notice, by the way, Joshua made his choice before he actually, with his family, before he asked anyone else? There's two sides to that. One is, if you really think you have to wait for somebody else to serve the Lord before you do, then you better pray that they always do. Because the moment they go south, you'll go south with them. On the other side of it, I'm challenging you today to do what God said here through Joshua. Make your choice. Interesting, by the way. There's a whole group of people within the body of Christ and all they want to talk about is how you don't have a choice. Like how God would choose some people and not choose others. The interesting part to me is that they're confident God's already chosen them, so that's not in question. The question is whether God would choose you. And yet I read that it's not... God's intent or pleasure that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And it seems to me that Joshua is well aware of that because he says, look, at the choice is yours now. I've already made my choice. Now it's time for you to make yours. As far as me and my house, we've made our choice. And as the representative of my house, we've made our choice. It isn't just that we're going to bank on him getting us out of hell. 
It isn't just that we're going to call him our Savior, but we are calling on him as, calling on him as our Lord. He's our boss now. He's, we're going to serve him. We are handing ourselves over to the Lord. Which is a wise thing to do, especially when you know you might be seeing him face to face shortly. The people answer in verse 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord is our God. He brought us and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage, and did these great signs in their sight. He preserved us in all of the way that we went among them and the people throughout which we passed, through whom which we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us and all our people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We will, we also will serve the Lord. He is our God. (coughs) And Joshua said to the people, you can't serve the Lord. For he's a holy God, he's a jealous God. He won't forgive your transgressions or your sin if you forsake. And by the way, notice, by the way, verses 19 and 20, they're the same sentence. He won't forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and you serve other gods, foreign gods. Well, then he will turn and the harm, he says, he'll turn and do you harm and consume you as he's done to you good. Now, put the whole thing together. It isn't saying, well, you can't serve him. It's like, you can't serve him and serve them. Don't expect God to constantly, just don't bank on Him constantly forgiving you if you're serving both gods. The whole sentence says this. He's a holy God. He deserves your total love. And He's a jealous God. Now, I've heard Oprah say, that's why she can't love God because or can't follow the God of the Bible because if He's jealous, then He must have some form of fault. Well, there's a human jealousy based on insecurity. But the simplest jealousy is that you have something or someone else has something you want. The reason you're jealous is because you want something that, it's, that, you, that you wish you had that you can't have. The only thing in Scripture that God is jealous of is you. Because the only thing He wants is you. Is He jealous of my time? Is He jealous of my money? Is He jealous of my stuff? How in the world He gave me all that? The only thing He's jealous of is my heart. And I wouldn't want to love a God who wouldn't be. A God that's like, well, I don't really want you anyways, but I'm contractually obligated. He's like, you can't serve both and expect God to bless you for that. There's no fence to walk. That's like Deborah going back to Hugo's illustration saying, well, can I marry you half the week? You know, can I be married Monday through Wednesday? Okay, Sunday, maybe two, so we go to church. But then, like, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, can I just be single? Some of you have actually seen marriages like that, and you know that unless something revolutionized, that is headed for a train wreck. They don't say that openly, but you watch that in their lifestyle. When Hugo wanted to marry Deborah, he says, well, you have me. Can I have you? Can you imagine if she's like, well, how much? How much of me do you want? The only humble part of that would be, look, there's stuff that's pretty rotten, too. But he goes like, that's part of love, is I take the whole package. And the reason I say that is, is that the whole statement here, Joshua's saying, because the people are like, oh, no, no, we're going to serve God. He's like, look, look, before you just make that quick jump and knee-jerk into this vow with me, you need to realize to choose this God means you're going to have to choose against everything else. If Deborah were to choose Hugo, she has to choose against every other man on the planet. She only gets one and he's going to be it then. And in the same way, 
to say yes to this God. And that's what Joshua is saying. If you're going to really say yes, you're going to have to say no to all the others. Jesus is not part of the spiritual salad bar. He's not part of the sort of buffet of religions. It's him as Lord of all or not Lord at all. Those are his options. And you could say, well, gosh, that sounds rotten. Well, really, how could he demand that? You would want the same. So he says, you, you recognize this, right? Verse 21, they say, oh, no, we'll serve the Lord. We'll serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, your witnesses against yourself today that you have chosen the Lord, not just the Savior, but the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you. Decline your heart then to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And they made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone, set it under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. But it has been heard all the words of the Lord, which was spoke to us, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. Joshua then let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. This is, by the way, the seventh or eighth stone monument in this book. And the final one of our, of our book. It came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried, and by the way, that's a little harder to swallow in America than it is here. For some reason, France and England are the places where gals, it's usually gals, not guys, have you noticed? They live to like 113. And you ask them what's their secret, and it's like they get a glass of wine every day and like, you know, I don't know, like martini olives or something. Things you're like, what? You know, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and Weedabix or something. And I don't know, anyways. So Joshua living to 110. That's really not that hard to, to deal with here. It says he died. Verse 30, and they buried him in the border of the inheritance of Timnasera, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gash. And he, by the way, is an Ephraimite, so that makes sense. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. By the way, did you see the countdown starts then? God's like, look, at, as long as all of the people that were elders there could hold them accountable. They were going to do it. Now, before we get to our last two verses, Joshua gave a very practical command to the people. He told them, you're going to need to serve them then. You're going to hand yourself over to them. And oh, yeah, 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 we'll do it. Do you remember the one practical thing he told them they needed to do? Put away your gods. Remember that? Just throw them all away. Do you know what's interesting? Do we read that at all in the rest of this text at all? Do we read anywhere in all of that that they did? Hmm. It's kind of like publicly, they were more than happy to make that declaration. And I kind of get why they would serve the Lord while the elders were still alive. Because that was a public accountability. But the private part, that's where your gods were, were in your house. I kind of get the idea the reason they jumped from here the moment the elders died into a time of unprecedented helplessness 
was because they really never took this vow home with them. Hey, in this room, you have your Christian costume on. Whether you know the Lord or not, you'll probably nod just because I'm staring at you in the face sooner or later. And you can say, yeah, you know what? If that's really what God wants to give me, I'm more than happy to take it. When God called Matthew the tax collector, he said, follow me. And we read Matthew did. The first place Jesus went with him was home with him. Let's go to your house. Follow you where? To your house, Matthew. When God called Gideon to be one of those judges, the first thing God told Gideon he had to do before he was going to lead the people was get rid of the household idol. Because that household idol, the rest of the town was coming over to worship. God's like, we need to do some house cleaning before we start doing some city cleaning. And I'd say that the Lord wants to do that. I really do believe he wants to transform London. And I want to be a part of it. I crave to be a part of it. But it starts with our households. It starts with getting rid of the gods of our house. Whatever that is. And here's the cool part. I don't even have to tell you what that is. But if you're willing to ask the Lord tonight when you're in your house, is there anything you need to ditch out of this? You want to go and remove. Don't you think he'll tell you? Why wouldn't he tell you? So knowing that, remember how he kept all of his promises? One of them goes all the way back to the end of Genesis when Joseph died. Verse 32. The bones of Joseph that the children of Israel had brought out of Egypt, they buried in Shechem, in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, by the way, for 100 pieces of silver. Remember, that's where he made this vow with the people. In which it had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. By the way, that's Genesis 50:25, if you want to know. Moses, by the way, in Exodus 13, took the bones of Joseph when he came out of Egypt. Now they finally made their landing. It tells us in Hebrews 11:22 that Joseph, when he was dying by faith, told them, "I know you guys are going to make it back in Israel. So because you make it back in, take my bones with you." The place that they had bought, they purchased, is in Genesis 33 and then 48. And it says in, in the last verse, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, that was our high priest at the time he died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. To close this up, listen, this is our sixth book that has been completed. Genesis ends with the death of the loved firstborn son, if you will. Exodus ends in 40 chapters, it ends with the tabernacle being raised up. So the first ended with the death of a son. The second ended up with something being raised up where the people would meet with God. Leviticus 27 chapters ends, by the way, with the Jubilee, which then talks about forgiveness and redemption. Numbers 36 chapters, by the way, ends with getting an inheritance. He speaks about the sons of Zelophehad. Deuteronomy 36 chapters ended, by the way, with handing the baton to the new leader, Joshua. And now Joshua ends with a covenant of faithfulness. So here it is. It was the death of a son, then it being raised up, then forgiveness and redemption, and then an inheritance, and then making Joshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus, our leader, and now our declaring our faithfulness to him. That's the end of our six books. As we go to prayer, and we're right on target. I'll do this in two minutes.
As we go to prayer, let me ask you, have you made your choice? I'm not talking about have you chosen to be part of a church or have you chosen to be part of a religion or even to call yourself Christian. I could call myself British, but the government still has a final say. That's become painfully clear this year. Over and over and over. So far. Soon, though. In a year from now, we're going to go mental. Actually, yeah, about that. I'm so looking forward to that. Please hear me. God's asking you to make a choice tonight as if he were dropping a knee. But it was his job, just like Hugo's, to prove his faithfulness and his love. Love is proven in sacrifice. I mean, true love is really proven in sacrifice. Could there be no greater sacrifice than this? Greater love have no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus took your guilt and my guilt, and he died on a cross with it, so that he could pay your bill and mine. Innocent, yet chose you, and wanting you, knew that that bill had to be paid, and he chose to pay it himself. How do I know it was enough? Because unlike any other human being like that, three days later, he rose from the, on the third day, he rose again. And just the same way that when the high priest offered his sacrifice for sin, we know that he was accepted. If he came out alive again, Jesus took our payment to the grave and then he came out alive again. Muhammad is dead. You can visit his tomb. Buddha, if he ever did live, is dead. Every religious leader is dead except one. And it was the only one who volunteered to pay your bill and mine too. It was the only one who was sinless, so he was actually the only one qualified to do so. I'm so thankful that they all met with the same person. How about you? Could you imagine if Jesus offered, but he wasn't qualified? That would really be terrible. He's already made his choice, and he's already paid the price. The only thing left is for you to make yours. Can I say I've made mine? For sure, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're not just going to bank on him getting us out of hell. We want to serve him. We want to hand our lives over to him and say, all right, Lord, do with us as you wish. We're yours. But for that to happen, let me warn you, as Joshua said, choosing one is to choose against every other. So you need to recognize that. And if you want to pray that prayer to me, and maybe tonight you just want to renew your vows. Maybe tonight what you really want to say is, God, over again, I want to openly declare that I say yes to you. In one week from today, on November 4th, my wife and I will officially be married 26 years. It will be our 26th anniversary a week from today. And we have openly declared on several occasions to renew our vows, to say, you know, it's easier to say today than it was 26 years ago. Yes, I still openly declare this. So maybe you want to do that. Maybe because today you know a little bit better of what it is. No, it doesn't make you any more married than you were before. But if you have said yes, in it though, I want to give God permission to, to come home with us. and to, take, to get every other old lover out of our hearts. That's only appropriate, isn't it? But that's the choice you have to make. Pray with me, would you please? God in heaven, I thank you so much for what you've done in this time, for the way you've revealed to us through this text your love for us, your proof of that love. And in offering that love, you offer our protect, your protection, your provision, your pleasure, your presence. <coughs> Those things come part and parcel <coughs> with saying yes to you. But Lord, in doing that, 
We don't want to just say yes to you on a part-time basis or sort of like work out a timeshare for those things. You are absolutely and fully committed to us. Make us so with you. Tonight in this room, we openly declare for anyone who wants to stand with you, we openly declare tonight that we hand ourselves over to you. We make the choice and we are choosing not just who will let love us, but who we will hand ourselves over to, who we'll serve. And we openly declare tonight that we'll serve you. We will hand our lives over to you and allow you to do with them as you wish. We recognize to say yes to you is to say no to everything else that competes with you. We recognize to say yes to you tonight declares war on anything that declares war on you. We recognize tonight that to say yes to you says yes to a life and an eternity with you. And saying yes to you, we invite you home. We invite you to kick out every old lover that fights with you, every old God, so to speak, or idol that we've relied upon that we know is stupid. And we invite you to take your place that we don't live the life of judges, but rather we live the life of you, not just as our Savior, not just as our Deliverer, but as our King. So for us to say this, we recognize your challenge to put away every foreign God. And to that we say yes. Those of the past that we've once leaned on and those of the present that are around us. Lord God, tonight, we say yes to you. We make that choice. We declare Jesus as our payment at the cross. We declare you, Jesus, as our resurrected Lord. And we say now, as we are handing ourselves over to you, make us your masterpiece. As we hand ourselves over, we say this confidently, that you are the one and only right place to hand over everything of our life to you. So here we are, we're yours. Have us now. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer and you want to make that choice with me tonight, I ask you to give a confident and resounding Amen. Lord, you've heard the words of our mouth. And we've seen it here in the end of this chapter. Make us different than these people. For it isn't just about the accountability of other people around us. But now take us home. And in doing so, de-idol our lives and be our King. In Jesus' name, Amen. (coughs) Beloved, thank you for the privilege of being able to go through the Word with you again. Thank you for the honor of being your pastor. I want to encourage you tonight now. Love on each other and enjoy each other. But make sure that tonight, when you're at your house,
Just ask him why you want to change and let him do it. All right, God bless you guys. Be a blessing.